Well, Revelation 17 is where we're at this morning, and we come to probably, if not the most, one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible uh, to go through or at least to try to understand. In addition to Revelation 17, we'll be in Genesis 9 through 11, and we'll be referencing those chapters as well as Matthew 13 and Matthew 24. So Genesis 9 through 11, Matthew 13, Matthew 24. Be in Revelation 17 is our main text, but we'll also be referencing Genesis 9 through 11, Matthew 13, and Matthew 24. Now, when we get to Revelation 17, we are at the end, uh, right around the midpoint of the Great Tribulation, an angel flew through the sky warning every individual on earth not to take the mark of the beast because if they did, they would experience God's unmitigated wrath both in this life and eternity. And we saw that. God poured out his bold judgments in chapter 16, and that brought us right to the end of the tribulation just before Jesus comes back. But before we cover Christ's second coming, which is in Revelation 19, we need to address a city that has been mentioned numerous times for being especially deserving of God's wrath. And that city is Babylon the Great. And that's what we're going to cover in 17 and 18. We'll begin that this morning. Verse 1 of chapter 17 says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven bulls, and he talked with me, saying, Come hither. I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names and blasphemy, of blasphemy having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand, full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. And the angel said unto me, why did you marvel? We start off here with one of these angels that poured out the bold judgments. We don't know which one. He tells John to follow him. He has something to show him. Verse 1, there came one of the seven angels which had the bowl, seven bowls, and talked with me saying, come here. Why? Because I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. The word here, show, means to explain the character or the significance of something. And so what this is telling us is that the next two chapters, chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation, they exist to explain why something deserves the judgment it receives to reveal its character and significance in the end-time rebellion against God. Now, to explain the why, we need to first understand the who. And so he says, I'm going to show unto you, explain to you the character or the significance of the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. This judgment is upon a very influential prostitute. The phrase the great whore means the mega prostitute. The word 
for whore here, porne in the Greek is from which we get our modern word pornography from. It describes a woman who practices sexual immorality as a profession. Now, in John's day, most prostitutes were sex slaves. They did not enter into this by choice. They were owned by a brothel or a person. But there were other groups of prostitutes that were considered high status positions for women in that society. For example, the temple prostitute was a position of high prominence and influence. The artistically skilled prostitute was often considered to be something that was desirable. And then lastly, the the most unusual was just the independent prostitute. Ladies, you, you didn't have a, women just couldn't go to work back then. It was a very different world. And so if someone did this, it was you know, usually you did it when you had, had, you didn't do it because you needed the money. So it was something that someone did for status. Now this mega prostitute is in a place of authority here. So she clearly belongs to one of these three groups rather than a slave position because she is sitting upon something. She's in a place of authority and influence. She is sitting upon many waters. Now, there's only one place in Scripture that fits the description of many waters, and it is Babylon. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 12 and 13, it tells us here, Set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon, make the watch strong, set up the watchmen, prepare the ambushes, for the Lord has both devised and done that which he spoke against the inhabitants of Babylon. O you that dwell upon many waters, that's Babylon, abundant in treasures, your end is come, and the measure of your covetousness. And so we see here that Babylon, in particular Jeremiah 51 speaks of the end times Babylon, and its destruction is referred to the place of many waters. And so this mega prostitute is in a place of authority and influence over Babylon, and yet Revelation 17, 15 tells us something different is up about Babylon during the end times. Verse 15 of chapter 17 says, and he said unto me, the waters which you saw where this prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. This final form of Babylon is not restricted to one location. It is an end times Babylon whose influence is spread beyond the Fertile Crescent to the entire world. It's more than just one nation. It has infected all of them. Now, what she spreads across the globe is what makes her worthy of God's ire. Verse 2, with whom, the great prostitute here, the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Now, we know from the book of Revelation that the kings of the earth refers to those rulers who will join the Antichrist kingdom. Fornication is mostly a word that is used in the Bible for unbiblical sexual activity, but sometimes it is also used to describe idolatry, and that is how it is going to be described here. This mega prostitute convinces these rulers to buy into her idolatry in addition to their aligning with the Antichrist. So they're going to align with the Antichrist, but they're also going to align with her, which gives us a clue that she and the Antichrist have some kind of partnership in the end times. Now, this is not the only group she convinces. She also convinces the inhabitants of the earth. They also are made drunk with the wine of her idolatry, her fornication. 
Now we know that the inhabitants of the earth is a phrase all throughout Revelation that describes unbelievers, those who will eventually reject the Lord's warning and who will take the mark of the beast. They start off their rebellion against the Lord by buying into her idolatry. And it says that they have been made drunk with it. Now, in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, again, describing this end times Babylon system, religious system, it says, Babylon has been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. That word mad means to be boastful, to become foolishly prideful. What this woman convinces, and it's not a specific woman, we already see here it represents something else, but this religious system, this Babylonian religious system, she convinces the allied leaders with the Antichrist and a large portion of humanity to join a unified global religious system that doesn't need God, doesn't need God's wage, doesn't need God's Savior. She convinces them to buy into the spirit of Antichrist, the belief that humanity can rescue themselves, that humanity can create a perfect world all on our own. We don't need the Lord. Now, this explains a bit of what she's like, who she influences, and why God's so upset. But it still doesn't fully identify who she represents, who she is, and how she's connected to the Antichrist. And so the angel tells John to follow him so he can fill in these details. And so he says, come here, and John comes, and verse 3, he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns." Wilderness here refers to an uninhabited region, a wasteland. Babylon at this point in time in history is exactly that. It's a wasteland. No one lives there in this point in history. Is this where John is taken? I don't know. Wherever he is taken, though, this wasteland that no one lives in anymore is occupied by someone, a group of someones here, when John arrives. It says he sees a woman who is sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. The woman clearly is the great prostitute of verses 1 and 2. But now we see that the many waters of Babylon that she sits on are described to us as something much more familiar. This revived Roman Empire from Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. The Antichrist in his kingdom from Revelation 13 verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. This is that beast that represents the Antichrist and his kingdom, the final part of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision. Now, because John has already seen the beast and he's already had a description given to him of the beast and what it represents, his attention is on the new thing, this woman who is riding the beast as if she's in charge of it. Verse 4, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. These two words, was arrayed, in the original language, convey the idea that this has been her habit for a long time, to wear these clothes and to have these adornments. This has been something she has presented herself as for a very long time. 
It gives the idea that someone a very long time ago honored her with this position. Purple and scarlet, they are the colors, the clothing of kings, of priests, and of the wealthy. These adornments that she's decked with, gold and precious stones and pearls, again, these are the adornments of kings and priests and the wealthy. All of these things at some point in time in the past, long ago, were given to her, but there is one thing here that she possesses that is her own. It says here that she has a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornications, her idolatry. Abominations here means foul, disgusting things. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is used to describe idol worship consistently. She has a cup that's full of her idolatrous, disgusting things. The word next says and, but it should say even, even the filthiness of her fornication. The word here, filthiness, it means that which makes someone unacceptable to God. This mega prostitute is wealthy, influential, and wicked. She is given this exalted position, but the work of deceiving the nations to reject the Lord and to trust in idols is her own special concoction. And because of that, she has a title, one that shows just how responsible she is for the corruption that permeates the world. Verse 5, and upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. It's interesting that this is upon her forehead. That's the place where God put a seal on the faithful, right? When the 144,000 were sealed, it says God put a seal on their, well, through the angels, they put a seal on their forehead. In Ezekiel, I want to say it's chapter 9, it mentions that Ezekiel's given a vision of the, the spiritual realm right before Babylon's about to sack the city. And so he sees this vision of an angel who is instructed to put a mark upon the foreheads of all those who sigh because of the idolatry in Jerusalem, of all those who are wearied by the wickedness of Jerusalem, that they might be protected during the attack. And then another angel comes and he brings destruction. So this place where God puts his seal upon the faithful, well, she has a a different identifier. A name is written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. Roman sex slaves were often tattooed with a mark of ownership, but the more affluent prostitutes wore a headband with their name engraved on it. This great prostitute here, she has a name that has three descriptions in the name. Number one, mystery. Mystery, we usually think of if you're going to watch a, you know, a mystery you know, show or movie or read a, a mystery novel, it's because you don't know what's going to happen, and so part of the fun of the story is you're trying to figure it out as the characters are trying to figure it out, right? That's how we understand a mystery, something unknown. That's not how the word mystery is used biblically. The word here means that which was hidden before but has now been revealed. So her name is, means something's been revealed. Another part of her name is Babylon the Great. Now, Babylon's origins go back to Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10. It says, and Cush, one of Noah's grandsons, begat Nimrod, and he became a mighty hunter before the Lord. 
and it says that he founded the city of Babel. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Eric, and Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So, Babylon here is called the great because it's called a great or mighty city at least eight times in the next two chapters. The reason Babylon is a great or mighty city is because its influence in history has been massive. The third descriptor in her name is the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. This great prostitute is the one who has birthed all the other prostitutes and all the other vile religious practices that have come down to us in history. Now, to understand this name and its three descriptions, we need to go back to the founding of this city, back to the place that I may be wrong, but I personally think John is seeing here. I think the angel takes John back to the place where Babel was founded after the flood. When Noah and his family emerged from the ark, the world was a wasteland, completely uninhabited, completely destroyed. And God blessed Noah in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and after he blessed him, he gave him a command. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, it says to us, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and... King James says, replenish the earth, but literally it means fill the earth, spread out and fill up the earth. That was God's command. Now, when Noah's descendants multiplied, though, they decided it was a bad idea to fill the earth. Instead, they said they should unify so that God could never destroy them again. Look at chapter 11 of Genesis, verse 1. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. That's where Babel would be founded. And they said one to another, go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime they had for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. You see? They decided what God told them to do was not a good idea. We need to do something lest what God told us to do happens. And thus here, we have the first one world government. Everyone is unified against the Lord. But this one world government, you need to understand, was founded upon a one world religion, one created by Satan in anticipation of the true Messiah. In Genesis chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, there's more to the story about this guy named Nimrod. It says in verse 8 of chapter 10, and Cush begat Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now, you got to understand, Nimrod was such a big figure back then, such an important influential figure back then, that when people were acting like him, they said, hey, you're acting like Nimrod. Don't be a Nimrod. It's not a good thing that they said, hey, it's like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. No, it's a negative. He became a parable, a proverb, you know, that people would say, don't be like that. Why would they say that? 
Well, when it says that Noah's great-grandson was a mighty hunter before the Lord, that phrase means he was a tyrant who hunted souls in opposition to the Lord. Nimrod's influence is such that even as late as the 7th century B.C., Micah chapter 5 verse 7 calls that region of the world the land of Nimrod. According to Josephus, Nimrod was a great leader who changed the narrative of the flood. He said that God didn't rescue, great, graciously rescue Noah and his family. It was Noah's strength and courage that rescued humanity and secured their survival from God's awful anger. That God was trying to destroy all of humanity and that he alone had the strength and the fortitude to do something about it, to stand up to God and somehow protect the human race. Sound familiar? It's exactly the message that the Antichrist and the false prophet will preach in the end times. God is our enemy. We have to fight him. We have to go against him. Otherwise, he'll wipe us out. And so, according to Josephus, the great Jewish historian, Nimrod promised to take revenge upon the Lord. He promised to secure humanity's safety if God were to ever try to drown humanity again. And what was his solution? We will build a tower so high that the waters won't be able to reach it. We will build a tower so high that we can assault heaven and take vengeance on the God who tried to destroy us. Nimrod was Satan's first attempt to bring about this mystery of iniquity. And thus it came with not just a plan to rebel against God, but its own religion to replace the worship of God a religious system that would worship Nimrod and the power behind him, Satan, in place of the Lord. Now, that didn't work out so well, did it? I mean, God didn't even, you know, have to get an army together. He just thwarted their silly plan by confusing their languages. And so Nimrod died and history crawled on. But as people scattered and filled the earth, his religious system began to spawn numerous other branches. Oh, the names were changed. The details were changed. Maybe even the modes of worship may have become a little different, but the story was the same. What God told us wasn't true. It isn't true. It's perfectly fine to worship something else, something created out of your own mind. A god, a goddess, or a a multiple set of gods, a pantheon that suit you and your wants instead of you suiting yourself to your creator, the one true God and judge of all. Well, this explains who she is and where she came from, but it still doesn't explain how she got in the position of authority over the final one world government of the Antichrist. How did everything that at one point was together but God scattered, how did it come back again? That's the question. Well, it's difficult for us sometimes to understand because we look at ourselves today as, as society, and at least in the United States, and we see ourselves as above idolatry, above the worship of false gods. How will a world that seems to be less and less religious each day throw their support behind a one-world religion? Well, verse 6, but I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. We'll get into this in a minute. But 
I think it's important to look and see that we are not so irreligious as we think in our society. When we look at this beast that she rides on top of, the beast is that final form of the statue in Daniel chapter 2, the ten toes, right? The clay and iron mingled together. We know that. The revived Roman Empire of some kind. Well, one myth that sprang from Babylon is noteworthy. It's the myth of Europa. Now, Europa was a Phoenician girl who drew the attention of Zeus, the head of the Greek pantheon. And Zeus became infatuated with Europa's beauty and grace. And so to lure her away, he transformed himself into a beautiful white bull. And while Europa was gathering flowers, she saw this magnificent bull. And fascinated by it, she approached and eventually got onto the bull's back. So once she was on his back, Zeus abducted Europa, swam to the island of Crete, and there he revealed his true identity, raped her, and impregnated her. And Europa gave birth to Minos, the first minotaur, who became the king of Crete. That's the myth. Now, the image of Europa riding upon Zeus to her horrible rape isn't exactly a thing I'd expect modern humanity to glorify, would you? A woman riding a beast Not exactly something you would think that our modern humanity would use as a symbol. And yet that very image is all over the European Union's coinage, stamps, and buildings. I have some visual aids today. Can you show the first coin? That's 2002. So the next one, 1995. European Union coinage. The next one is a commemorative coin, not from any year. If you'll notice, she's nude in all these. If you are to take a closer look, particularly at the next one, it's a stamp. You can see the genitals of every, I'm not asking you to look, but you can see it. This is is not a tame picture, okay? Not tame at all. That stamp was the first time I ever came into contact with this is long before the internet. And someone told me about this and I said, that's crazy, that's not true. And then I, I printed, I got the stamp, I have it in my office. And of course, nowadays, you have the internet, you can just look it up, and you can go find it on your own. You can find all this stuff on your own. And I kept it because I wanted to show people because it sounds crazy. Like, you sit down, and you go, hey, you know, we're going to form this European government where it's going to be like a unified government where we're going to throw down borders and become unified. What should we pick for our symbol? There's these group of Christians out there that are crazy, but they think we're crazy, and we're going to be the Antichrist someday. What should we make our symbol? How about a woman riding a beast? Next one. This is out in front of the building in Brussels. Woman riding a beast. I know it doesn't have ten heads. It's not exactly like Revelation says, but the idea is of Europa. Europa, or the name Europe, it supplanted the name of the latter part of the Roman Empire because at that time, the name Roman Empire was a dichotomy. The Roman Empire was split between east and west. It wasn't unified anymore. And so Europa became the word that expressed the hopes of the western part of the empire to be unified again. The words Europe and Europeans became the main name used for that continent after the Muslim invaders were turned back at the Battle of Tours in 732 AD. What significant thing happened right around that time? Well, it became a new dawn for the Roman Empire, a name that soon was supplanted by another name, not the Roman Empire, but something called the Holy Roman Empire, an empire united 
with Christianity of all things. So why the return to Europa to represent a unified Europe? It seems odd to me to have a story of kidnapping and rape be a unifying element. Well, I don't need to tell you what I think. I'm just going to quote the New Federalist, which is the official magazine of the European Union. And I quote, the myth of Europa and the bull is a significant and sexy image of Europe reinventing itself as the European Union. The picture on the coin provides the reassurance of continuity. New Europe is still old Europe. So is Europa a naive, passive victim of God or an adventurous girl that takes the bull by the horns and seeks her destiny behind the horizon? I didn't write that. I never knew that kidnapping and rape were sexy. I imagine that those who experienced such pain would be horrified. And I never knew that we were victims of God. The European Union and many other written statements have made it clear that it uses Europa as a symbol for something called pan-Europeanism. What is that? It is that a person gains their sense of personal identification from Europe, not from their individual cultures or nations. The model of a pan-European Union, that's their words, where everyone sees themselves as European, is this. This is what they say their model of is. And I quote, the Carolingian Empire, which first defined Europe as the cultural entity of the areas ruled by the Roman Catholic Church. That's just another way of saying the Holy Roman Empire. That's their idea of pan-Europeanism, reviving the Holy Roman Empire. Not my words. Now, again, the beast doesn't have ten heads and, you know, or seven heads and ten, ten all this stuff. I, I, I get it. I'm not saying the European Union is the beast, but neither am I making this stuff up. <laughs> Whatever the final form of the Roman Empire looks like, we are seeing its seeds already. Already. A people who unify under one government and who push that unity upon the entire world. A unity based on a belief system that God has wronged us and that we must take life by the horns and secure our happy future our way lest we be raped by God of everything that's ours. And that religious ideology started way back with Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. And it will be back on display, reunified at the end. Now, These are things John's very familiar with. He lives in the Roman Empire. He's surrounded by this kind of religious system. Nothing about this woman should be shocking to him. And yet, it is. When he saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, he wondered with great admiration. When he sees her drunk, the word here means she is overindulged. This is not just she's had one too many. She's had way too many. But she's not overindulged in alcohol. She is overindulged in bloodshed. Babylon the Great, this religion of Satan throughout the ages that had been hidden beneath different pantheons and different modes of worship is now revealed here at the end as having gorged itself on all of God's people that she's killed through history. 
I have studied mosquitoes, don't ask why. And someone even weirder than me did research on mosquitoes, and they discovered that if you damage or inhibit the nerve, a certain nerve in them, when they plug in and begin to eat, that that nerve normally will tell them, hey, you've had one too many, call a cab. That nerve, if you damage it, it doesn't know that, and it will actually drink itself to the place where it will burst. The image here is of a woman who is about to burst. She's about to pass out because she is engorged with blood. When John sees that it's the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, he wondered with great admiration. Again, a, not a good translation. The word wonder there, it means to be shocked, stunned, amazed. And it's emphatic. It's the most important verb in the verse. It's the main thought we're supposed to get that John is shocked, stunned, amazed. And he's shocked and stunned and amazed with great, same word, admiration. It's the same word, stun, shock, amazement. Now, John told us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, that he was a martyr at the hands of Rome. The word martyr, we use it if someone who's given their lives, who's died for their faith. But the word martyr is just the word martyrion. In the Greek, it means to, to be persecuted because you testify for your faith. John called himself a martyr in Revelation 1.9. Seeing this should be normal for him, not shocking. So what would shock John had to be something he wasn't used to seeing. And you know, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36 and 37 remind us that persecution doesn't just come from the world. In Hebrews 11, 36 and 37, it says, after all these other people did wonderful deeds and experienced wonderful blessings, it says, but others of faith, great faith, also had trials of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yes, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. Isaiah wasn't sworn in two by Gentiles. He was sawn in two by his own people. Stephen was stoned by the religious leaders of Israel, not Roman soldiers. Paul was slandered and imprisoned by a group called the Judaizers, people who claimed to follow Jesus. You see, what John sees here that's so shocking at the end is an inclusive global religious system that includes Christianity. Not the persecuted, impoverished church that he was a part of, but a wealthy, powerful, influential, and abominable church that retained the name of Christ, but replaced it, the gospel, with a do-it-yourself salvation message. And Jesus predicted this. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives seven parables of the kingdom the kingdom of heaven is like this. I'm not going to read them all because that would take too long. <laughs> but I do want to hone in on the parable of the wheat and the tares. Other parables tell the same message, but the parable of the wheat and the tares is the most detailed. In Matthew 13, 24, it says, Another parable put he, Jesus, forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. 
But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did the tares come from? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you want us that we should go and gather them up to rip out the tares? They're useless. But he said, Nay, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, gather you together first the tares, and bind them in bundles, and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, Jesus, in verse 36, he sent the multitude away, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. We don't understand it. What does that mean? And so verse 37, Jesus gives the explanation. He answered and said unto them, He that sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. Now, parts of that we've already seen in Revelation 15, right? The reapers, the angels, coming out to separate the tares, right? and then to burn them, to to cast them into judgment, right? We've already seen that. But this parable communicates the idea that prior to that moment, they're going to grow up together. They will be intertwined. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth His angels. They shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. And they shall cast them into a furnace of fire where there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus taught this. Matthew 24, Jesus taught it again. 24 verses 7 through 13. When we get to verse 7 in Matthew 24, We begin the great tribulation, for nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, seal number two. And there should be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places, seal number three, seal number four, seal number six. We go down to verse eight, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Verse nine, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake, seal five. But verse 10 through 12 gives us a clue of where this comes from. And then shall many be offended. The word offended here means to desert, to abandon, to fall away, to apostatize. You cannot apostatize from something that you were never at least by appearances a part of. Then many shall fall away. And they shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Because of these false teachers, the love of many will be caused to grow cold. But instead of apostatizing, instead of turning in your fellow believer, he says, he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Listen, you can't betray someone unless you at least pretended to be on their side at one point. 
Jesus warned the church of Thyatira in one of his letters that if they did not repent, he would cast them into great tribulation. Revelation 2, verse 22. Jesus told Sardis in Revelation 3, verse 3, that if they didn't repent, he would come on them like a thief. And we studied last week, that's how Jesus comes in the world to judge them. This united global religious system will include a corrupted, blasphemous form of Christianity. But externally, it will look just like this. They'll sing songs to Jesus. They might even have a Bible. I don't know. I don't think they'll use it very much. It will have all of the form, but no relationship. Which is why Paul warned Timothy, in the last days, perilous times shall come and they will have a form of godliness, but deny its power. They won't be saved. They'll be in church, but they won't be born again. And so Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Timothy, I charge you therefore, verse 1, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, I charge you therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing at his kingdom. Context is the last days. I charge you, preach the word. Stick to the word, Timothy. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. The word doesn't become important when you show up at a building. Instant in season, out of season. And you preach it everywhere you go. You live it out everywhere you go. You use it to reprove, you use it to rebuke, you use it to exhort, to encourage people to do the right thing with all patience, don't lose your patience, and with a heart to teach, with doctrine. Why? Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts, they shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables Babylon. Now, when John is sitting there stunned, shocked, when he sees that the church is a part of this, the unbelieving church. The angel says to him, why did you marvel? Why are you so stunned? Why are you shocked? It's like he asks a question in a, the form, a gentle rebuke. Did you forget that Jesus told you this would happen? <laughs> or did you not believe him? And here's the takeaway for us. We cannot afford to simply be shocked and horrified at what we see around us because we make the same mistake John does here, that either we don't know Jesus' words or we don't believe Jesus' words. We cannot believe that it's just the people out there that can be deceived. We can't think we're immune because, well, I'm a part of a church somewhere or I, I pray or I do my very best. Because that is not Christianity. Having a church membership or saying a prayer here and there or, or doing your best, that's not Christianity. That's Babylon the Great. We must heed the consistent words of Jesus. Anytime he talks about the end, anytime he talks about this deception, he says, he that endures to the end shall be saved, right? So what does it mean to endure? It means to stay the course when things are rough. It's not complicated. 
means to stay the course when things are rough. And it's why Paul told Timothy what he did in 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 through 8, after he exhorts him to stay the course, he says this. He says, this is what I did. He says in verse 6, I'm, I'm going to die. I'm, I'm now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my race. I have kept the faith. And because of that, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. But not just me, Timothy, you too, unto all those who love his appearing. That's what's waiting for you, Timothy. This mystery religious system, this plan of Satan, Babylon the Great, it has been alive and it has been working since the Tower of Babel. Its harlot daughters have spread abominations throughout the globe and they have engorged themselves in the blood of the faithful for centuries. If you are trusting this morning in your own goodness or your own religiosity or anything other than Jesus to save you, you must repent because if you don't, you will become one of her victims. Oh, she won't kill you, but you'll be drunk with the same stuff she's drinking. Now, if you have repented of your sins and all your hope is in Christ and what he did for you on the cross, then you don't have to worry about this. You just need to stay the course, right? Stay the course. Stick to God's word. Fight the right fight. That's what good fight means. The word good there means that which is proper, beautiful, it's, it's fitting, it's in the right place. There are certain things you look at and go, that's out of place. The right fight, it means the, the fight that we're supposed to fight to finish our race. And so here's my exhortation to you as we close this morning. Don't trade the scripture for new truths. Don't trade the scripture for new ideas of mankind. Don't forsake the great commission for crusades Jesus hasn't called you to. And don't stray from loving your enemy because you let false prophets cool your love because they make you afraid of what the lost might do to you. John was one of many apostles who suffered because they reached out to the lost. It's our calling, guys. Jesus said, don't marvel if the world hates you. It hated me. And the servant isn't greater than his master. We have a great commission to love our enemy, to preach the gospel, to stay the course. Let's do it, amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we read about your people in the Old Testament, we see that on many occasions they may have not been in Babylon, but Babylon got into them. And in the book of Isaiah, you exhort them, come out, be separate. Don't touch the unclean thing. So Lord, we don't want to get caught up in the deception and in all the forms it can take. We recognize, Lord, the warning you gave that if it were possible, even the elect could be deceived. We want to recognize, Lord, that it's not always the obvious evil thing that's out there calling us. Lord, sometimes it's things that have the name of Christianity on top of it. Sometimes it's pastors or Bible teachers that are calling us to do things that, Lord, you don't say in your word that we're to do, that call us away from things in your word that you do tell us to do. 
Lord, help us to stick to your word even as we recommit to you this morning to endure to the end. Help us, Lord, to love our enemies, to preach the word, to fulfill the great commission. Pour out your spirit upon us. Give us boldness to love those who even are a danger to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.